All right. Well, again, welcome to Hope Lower Town. Glad you're able to make it and be here. Angela and I, uh, and Henry and Jack, we uh, every year go to this um, camp, this family camp down in Iowa, Iowa Regular Baptist Camp, um, IRBC, and uh, it is conservative, but it's fun. Uh, we have a good time down there. Um, it was it was actually a lot of fun this year to kind of just be at camp and view it through my two-year-old's eyes. You know, uh, it was it was just a lot of fun. He he had a blast, so I had a blast. I was wore out. Um, and really had a, had a good time. So I'm glad, glad you're here, and, and uh, no uh, Jason Pierre-Paul blowing up your fingers from fireworks, all that kind of fun thing. So um, if somebody did, I, I would assume they would have told me, but I don't know. Again, thanks for being here. Uh, so we, we are, this is a week three of a, of a new series of our summer series of just, hey, I have a question. Um, and so these were questions that were fielded from you or fielded by me from you. Um, and, uh, and as well as Pastor Cor and Steve downtown, and we kind of went through and, and looked at, uh, at some, of the, some of the questions. And so these are, uh, these are big questions, and these big questions require big answers. And so these aren't just a simple yes or no uh, thing. It's, they're they're going to be a little bit more difficult, and so I want to spend some time looking at God's Word and going through uh, what these questions are and take our time doing that. Um, one thing about, well, let me, so two weeks ago, um, we, we looked at, uh, is the Bible a reliable guide for my life, right? And, and again, the quick answer is, is yes, I, I think it is. And, and we kind of looked at just the numbers and statistics of what, what makes the Bible actually reliable. Uh, is it trustworthy? When I read these words, are these the words that the original authors had in mind? Um, and at the same time, is this actually God's word? Is this God-breathed? Is it inspired by God to impact us uh, in, in, in so many different ways and have the gospel penetrate deep into our lives and to actually change us. And so um, we, we looked at that last week. Uh, Pastor Steve uh, was here filling in for me and, uh, and, and answered the question, what was God thinking when he created sex? And, and just kind of looking at the beautiful thing that sex is within the boundaries of, of marriage um, and between a man and a woman. And we talked about, uh, Pastor Steve talked about that Last week, and so he kind of, um, kind of just these sub points. These are kind of three presuppositions regarding gospel sexuality. One, sexuality is incredibly personal because it lands deeply on relational and identity issues. Um, when we do, when I do premarital counseling, I'm doing it a lot. Doing, doing one tonight after after church. Um, we always talk about there's kind of three aspects of every relationship. There's an emotional aspect of a relationship. There's a um, spiritual uh, connection of a relationship, and there's also a physical um, connection. And when we look at those three different categories, Scripture is very clear, um, and I'm not going to get into the, the details here, but it, it is explicitly clear that marriage, uh, that sex is, is after marriage. Um, so when, it, when you're in the premarital, when you're in counseling, the whole idea is to focus on our relationships uh, and our spirituality and connecting deeply um, because sex isn't everything, right? I know it's easy for me to say because I'm married, and if you're single, you're like, yeah, yeah, sure, right? It's not, but it's not everything. And there are times, and, and if, you're, if you're with me, if you've been married or if you've had children, there are times in, in different stages of life where you, you can't have sex. And so if, if sex is the thing that's holding my relationship together, um, and then all of a sudden your wife gets pregnant uh, or has a child, it's difficult. And so if that's the only thing that's holding my relationship together, then I'm in trouble, Okay. So that's, that's the first one. Number two, we need the gospel to inform us about sexuality. And again, Pastor Steve, you have more, he preached on it last week. It's all online if you want to listen to this sermon. 
And then uh, three, which is incredibly important, is everyone's, every single human being's sexuality is broken and confused in this fallen world. I don't care who you are. I don't care how old you are, how young you are. Everybody's sexuality is broken and confused in this fallen world. That once sin entered the world, it messed everything up and it broke the harmony that we once had between men and women. And so sexuality is broken. And we need to remember that, that no one is perfect, uh, that, that a, a heterosexual or a homosexual, that they're, they're both sinners. Okay, so we need to just keep that in mind. Um, and then Steve kind of ended with this, though, looking at, at gospel sexuality, that God created sex to be received as a gift and experienced at his direction forever increasing intimacy and benefit as an illustration of his relationship with us. And this comes straight from Ephesians chapter 5, that he goes through and he's talking about a husband and a wife and their relationship and how they should interact. With, but he says, but this is a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ in the church. So this isn't even a sexual thing here. This is a relationship that I have with my life that is an illustration. It's a shadow of the real relationship that we as a church have with, with Christ. That is what uh, we are to do when it comes to sexuality. It is an illustration of what God has given to us. Now, this week's question is, how should the church address current cultural realities on sexuality? And there's a lot that could be said here. Matter of fact, there are, if you go online and go on the Hope's website, there's probably 10 or 15 sermons that we've done uh, in the past on these different things. And so my goal this evening is not, I mean, it's not to be like homosexual, homosexuality is, is evil, it's wicked, it's bad. It's not, we're not doing that. Um, we're not going to be looking specifically at, at uh, gender uh, identities and, and, and how we would relate and, and all those different things. I want to just look at what the Bible teaches. Um, I was, like I just said, I was just at a camp. And uh, there were some things I actually got up and, and kind of had to walk out of a service because he had a very, very, in my opinion, a very wrong interpretation of a passage of scripture that was being read um, that could have been incredibly hurtful and harmful. In other words, that the, the only role of a woman is, is to be fulfilled in her husband and, uh, and to be fruitful and multiply and have babies. So sorry if you're single and sorry if you can't have children. Uh, you are unfulfilled in this life. Okay, that was what I took away from that. Um, and that's not, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not, that's not the gospel. And so I know that there are things that I'm going to say tonight that you may completely disagree with. But I want you to know that I have your best interest in mind. That this, this topic, this, this passage that we're going to be looking at, a couple different passages, has weighed heavily on me. Um, I'm not, I don't usually have like the nicest demeanor right? I'm like, if you know Pastor Core, you know, people just love Pastor Core, right? They just gravitate to Pastor Core, right? He's just, I've said this from the pulpit before, he just oozes grace. Yeah, thanks, Craig. Um, right, but, but I'm, I'm a little prickly, right? And I get that. So if I say something, thanks, Craig. Uh, so if there's things that, that I say, just know that I'm saying it, uh, and I really want to give grace, and please give me grace as well as we, as we look at this, this topic. Um, so on that same point, um, a phrase that we use a lot around here is that matter and manner matter. And this is a topic that unfortunately has been so abused by the church to simply point out somebody else's sin that's different than mine. And then to say, you're wicked, you're evil, you don't belong, we don't want any, anything to do with you, right? We have enough 
sexual sins in our church, the last thing we need to do is go outside and start beating people over the head because they don't believe what we believe. So the content of what I'm saying is really important, but the manner how I say it is just as important. So matter and manner matter. So that is where we begin. One thing that I want to say that is just so crucial to this is that temptation is not a sin. Temptation is not a sin. If temptation's a sin, then Jesus is a sinner. My temptation to lust after other women isn't any less sinful than if I were to lust after a man. It's the temptation is not the sin. It's when I act upon that. So the question that, that I get asked a lot is, would you ever, would you ever have, uh, what, what, do you, what do you think about homosexuality? Well, that's not actually a very easy answer because the act of any sexual anything outside of marriage, what I believe what the Bible teaches between a man and a woman, anything beyond that is sin. But you have to act on it. To have a, a, a desire for the same sex is not a sin. And we have to remember that. It's only when we act upon these temptations and these impulses that it becomes sin. So we can't look down on, on somebody simply because, again, their temptation is just different than mine. Um, I'm actually going to quote uh, Nolan here. He said this, we can do a pharisaical sin of pitting majority sinners versus minority sinners. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what this is. When we start talking about homosexuality and all these different things, all it is is, hey, my heterosexual temptation I'm in the majority, guess what? Uh, let's focus on your stuff, right? And Jesus has something very clear to say about that, right? Like you take, take the log out of your own eye before you start looking at the speck in somebody else. That we all have our issues, we all are broken because of the fall. That everything we do and say and think is in some way tainted by sin. And we can do a pharisaical sin, right? Of thinking I'm better of pitting majority sinners versus Minority sinners. Um, Tim Keller, I think, puts it this way, and, and I think this is a, a good way to start, okay? And, I, and I, we, we started with, is the Bible a reliable guide? Because if, if it's not reliable, then what are we doing? Right? Why are we here? Why, why am I going to read passages of Scripture if I don't actually think it's God's Word? So I want to read kind of uh, just a, a couple of slides here from Tim Keller. He says this, Recently I read a panel discussion in which a bunch of people sat around. The question was, what are we to make of Christ in light of our modern lifestyles and values? There was a Marxist there who said, I like to think of Christ as a revolutionary who brings liberation. Another person, he was an artist, by the way, said, I like to think of Christ as a prophet against the cultural establishment. Do you see how comical this is? Friends, I know some of you are out there saying, I already know what I believe about sex. I already know uh, what I believe about men and women and gender. I already know what I believe about my needs. I already know what I believe about my desires. If Jesus Christ does not fit into those things, I'm out of here. Do you know what you've done? If Jesus is who he says he is, who cares about your needs and who cares about your opinions? Don't you see how silly it is? What are we to make of Christ? What is Christ to make of you? Therefore, if you go at it with this attitude, you have already assumed he is wrong before you start your investigation. 
you've assumed he can't be God. Because if you say, look, I don't want to hear, I have to stop this, or I don't want to hear and I have to change this, I don't want to hear that. If he doesn't fit in, then I'm out of here. Then you assume that he couldn't be who he says he is. Because if he is who he says he is, who cares what you think? There's an ultimate reality uh, there you have to adapt to, and it doesn't matter what you think of him, it matters what he thinks of you. Everything is going to be founded and based on this scripture and what we're going to be reading. And if Jesus is a liar, if he's a lunatic, then again, what, what, he claimed to be God. So let's take him at his word. Um, I do want to read our elder statement of faith. This is something that if you are an elder at Hope, um, this is what we, what we believe. This is what we uh, adhere to. Uh, every time I do a wedding, I read portions of this in, our, in, our, in the welcome to the wedding. It says this, Hope Community Church believes that Christian marriage is a joyful covenanting between a man and a woman in which they proclaim before God and human witnesses their commitment to live together in spiritual, physical, and material unity. In this covenant, they acknowledge that the great love God has shown for each of them enables them to love each other. We believe that the wedding ceremony is a place where this promise of a lifelong covenant between husband and wife is made in which the two become one flesh, as it is both an ordinance of creation, affirmed as such by our Lord, and commanded by St. Paul as a sign of the mystical union between Christ and his church, Matthew 19 and Ephesians 5. Therefore, Hope Community Church only allows wedding ceremonies that would affirm Christian marriage as defined above and officiated by a licensed minister of the gospel in the state of Minnesota who would also agree with the above definition. All right, so that's, that's the easy thing. Right, that, that's what we believe. That's what we teach. In this country, we're, we're legally allowed to, to do this and, and say these things, and they're in our bylaws, and, and this is how we would view marriage. What I want to try to do tonight is ask the question, how then should we as a church love people who don't agree with that statement? That's what I want to look at. So the cultural, this is supposed to say cultural reality. I don't know what happened to that slide, but the cultural reality Right? And I love the way that, that, that question's worded because this is a reality and the sexual diversity that's, that's in our country right now, it is real. It's true. I could read stories and quotes and we could look at different things that are going on with different companies and bathrooms and all that stuff, right? It is a reality that we live in this society and we live in this country. So how can we love without going after them and saying you're wrong and you're evil and you're wicked? How can we love? This is the cultural reality, and I, I stole this from Pastor Cor. He did this, man, I don't know, when I first went to Hope five years ago, um, he was teaching a class, and I don't remember what the class was, but I, I will never forget this. This um, is how culture views male and femaleness, right? You have, you have feminine qualities and you have masculine qualities, and, and somewhere in there, once it, it clicks over to be more feminine, well, then therefore you can identify as a female, or if it's more masculine, then you can identify as a male. And it's on this, on this slider, right? And it can be anywhere in between, right? And the other genders that are popping up right now and all these different things. But these, this is the cultural reality, that it's on this side. If you're more feminine, well, then maybe, maybe you were supposed to be a girl. If you're more masculine, then maybe you're supposed to be a man. That's, that's the slider. I, I actually struggled with this. Um, I remember as when I, this was a uh, young Brian, this is uh, 2008 on uh, my uh, beautiful bride. Uh, we weren't married yet. Uh, I think I was a 
junior or senior here, it doesn't matter. Um, I love football. I, I love football. There's something about lining up across from another 300-pound man and just hitting them, right? It just, it's just fun. I don't know why. I just enjoy it. And I've always liked football. Um, and there was part of me that felt like masculine, right? I'm a manly man. Look at all these soccer players, right? Like those, those they're not athletes, you know? And I remember, it's, it's, so, right? it's so insulting. I remember um, I would always challenge the soccer team, right? To say, how about this? We'll scrimmage you in a game of soccer. And then you guys put pads on and we'll scrimmage you in a game of football. We'll see who's the better athlete, right? Which is stupid. I struggled with this because I thought I was a man and I would look at other people with feminine qualities or characteristics and I would mock, I'd make fun, I'd do all that. And yet, I was in plays. And yet I loved the arts. And I will never forget this, this particular, this was the crucible I remember uh, that I did, I think it was my senior year. I was terrified that my football coach was gonna find out that I was in a play. Because I knew I would just get mocked I knew he'd make me run laps, maybe even bench me, right? He was just kind of that kind of guy. And, I, and so I struggled with this. You know, I have feminine characteristics. Well, is that okay? Is that frowned upon? But man, I really enjoy this thing, right? All these different aspects. And that's the slider that our culture says, but that's not what the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible teaches, that there are men and there are women. There are male and there are female. And that slider can go all the way back and forth. That a, that a man can have feminine qualities and still be a man. And a woman can have masculine qualities and still be a woman. That's what scripture teaches. I wanna actually share a couple examples of this in scripture of a man who might have a little bit more feminine characteristics and a female who might have more masculine characteristics. The first one is in Genesis 25. It says, when that time came for her to give birth, this is um, Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca, <laughs> it's right there. Rebecca's having children, okay? So it's uh, Isaac is her husband and she's gonna give birth. This is uh, one, of the, one of the fathers of our faith. It says, when the time came for Rebecca to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau, which just means red. <laughs> After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob, which means deceiver. Isaac, how'd you like that name, right? Any Jacobs in here? No? Okay, good. Um, Isaac was 60 years old when Rebecca gave birth to them. The boys grew up in Esau, right? Just listen, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. This is Jacob, right? Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob. He's mama's boy, but he's a man. Next one, Judges 4. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So I'm, I'm skipping a lot here, and it's really hard to try to put this in context here, but Deborah is going to be a judge uh, that's going to uh, judge Israel and get them back uh, to God. So Israel was doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that uh, Ehud was dead, he was a king, fat king. He got stabbed and the sword got stuck in his fat. It's kind of a funny story. If not funny, it's interesting. <laughs> it's really gruesome. Like, yeah. 
Uh, okay, let's just read. Verse 2. So Yahweh told them, uh, sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Hiroshath, Hegoyim, because he had 900 chariots filled, uh, fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. And they, the Israelites, cried to Yahweh for help. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidus, was leading Israel at that time. I need, you to, I need you to catch that. Not to say that if a woman leads, she has masculine characteristics. It's not what I'm saying. But she's leading here because you're going to see what she's going to do and what somebody else is going about to do. She held court under the palm of Deborah. I love that. She's just like, you know what? I'm going to name this tree after me. Um, she held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. And she sent for Barak, son of Aboyim, uh, from Kedesh of Natali, and said to him, Yahweh, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men of Natali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander, right, this evil commander, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops at the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. All right, so she's saying, listen, listen, what, what was his name? Uh, Barak, right? Barak, God's going to, you're going to win this huge battle. You're going to win the victory. And then Barak said to her, just listen to the timidity in his voice. If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. I love Deborah's response. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for Yahweh will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Right? So you're supposed to be some great warrior, some, some great leader of this army, and you're being a coward. Well, guess what? Some woman's going to step up, and she's going to win the victory, and she's going to get the glory. At Barak's advance, Yahweh routed Sisera and all of his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. I'm skipping a couple verses just because they didn't really matter. I mean, they matter in the story. They don't. Um, Jael, or Yale, uh, went out to meet Sisera and said to him, okay, so this woman comes out and sees this commander of this army and says, come, my Lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. Right? If somebody says, don't be afraid, and they're luring you inside of something, be afraid, right? Be very afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. And she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If anyone comes by and asks you, is anyone there, say no. But Yale, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly into him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. And she drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. What? Right, that's not femininity, right? I mean, some, some stuff's going on here, right? Like that's, whoa. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, right? So Barak, right? Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna catch him. I'm gonna, I'm gonna win the victory. But Yale went out to meet him. Come, she said, and I will show you the man you've been looking for. So he went in with her and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple dead. We have men and we have women. Some have masculine characteristics and some have feminine characteristics, but they're still men and they're still women. I want to look at a gospel response. What is, how should we view people who would say, I uh, am a homosexual, uh, I am a lesbian, I am gay, 
What should our response be? Do we have any scripture that shows how we should treat people who aren't like us, especially when it comes to sexual orientation? Well, yes, actually it does. Acts chapter 8. I'm just going to read this. I'm going to point out a couple of different things from this. Acts chapter 8, 26 to 39. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, angel of the Lord, it's kind of confusing, but it, it could just be an angel, it could be Jesus, uh, it's really confusing. But an angel of the Lord said to Philip, okay, so, so Philip's there, Jesus has already uh, died and been crucified and buried and risen and ascended into heaven, and, and all this is happening, and the church is, is just getting established. The Lord said to Philip, a disciple, go south to the road and the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, okay? So, so God's telling him, go this way. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. All right, I'm going to try to make some similarities here. It, it, it's not one for one, okay? Uh, a eunuch, I'm just going to be, be blunt here, a eunuch is a man who has been emasculated is a man who has his parts chopped off, okay? He's sterile, he's sterile, all right? Uh, there was a, a lot of different reasons that they used to do this. Um, a big one was that when they would have captives, they would, have, they would catch, capture a group of people, and you'd have a king, and they would usually have a harem. And so they would say, yep, nope, you're not gonna have your man parts so you can be with all my wives, <laughs> right? Because no temptation, right? It's gone. Uh, when we read about uh, Daniel, uh, he was most likely a eunuch in uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, when they were captured, were, were probably made eunuchs. Some um, people that were around money, the whole idea was that if you're not going to have a family, you can't do that, you can't focus on that, so you're going to really focus and pour into your work. All right, so that's this, this guy, this Ethiopian eunuch. So he's important, right? He's in charge of the treasure of the queen of the Ethiopians. And this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home, he was sitting in a chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. I don't say anything. I just want you to go and listen to what this Ethiopian eunuch is reading. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading from Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before a shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? All right, this is what we uh, in the uh, church world call low-hanging fruit, right? Of the individual just like, what do I have to do to be saved, right? Like, let me, let me tell you, right? And that's what, that's what this eunuch is doing. He's saying, is, he, is this passage, is it talking about himself, right? Is, is Isaiah talking about himself or is it talking about somebody else? Then Philip began with the very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. 
Three things I want to notice from this passage. Three truths from this passage are this. What is it about Philip and the eunuch that was different that would culturally stop them, stop Philip from sharing the gospel? What is it that we see about other people that are different from us that might stop us from sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? First thing is this, they're different ethnically. Right? There's, there's a racial thing happening here. He's Ethiopian, Philip is a Greek. And these two individuals, white and black, couldn't be any more different ethnically when it came to this, and yet the Holy Spirit says, go tell them about Jesus. That's number one. Number two, different religiously. Right now, it seems like this eunuch is searching, right? He's checking out Christianity. He's, he's uh, kicking the tires of Christianity. He just wants to know, is this, is this real? Is Jesus real? Is this really going to happen, right? Or, whatever. or he didn't know about Jesus, right? And, but they're different. And yet the Holy Spirit says, go. Go tell him. Go tell him about Jesus. Tell him about my son. But then finally, we see that they're different sexually. Now, the eunuch probably didn't have a choice. He was probably forced to be a eunuch. But yet, he was different sexually according to the Jewish religion. In Deuteronomy 23.1, it says, No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of Yahweh. All right? The Bible says if you're, if you're a eunuch, you cannot be a priest. You cannot work in the temple. You cannot work in the tabernacle of meeting. Can't do it. Right? So, there, so there's something even just sexually different. You're, he's not a man because, because parts of him are missing. And what Jesus and what the Holy Spirit are saying is, no, 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 no. He needs me. And he needs the gospel to fulfill him more so than a family or sex. Next point is, what is our goal? Right? Is our goal to change people? Right? Is, it, is it to get someone who has a, a homosexual tendency to try to, try to change them? Um, no. We've, we've got to stop this. We can't just pray the gay away. Right? I, I love what, uh, uh, I can't read her name now. Uh, she's a writer. Rosaria says this. She's, about, she's talking about this position, right, of, of, hey, we can, if you just become a Christian, we can, we can fix you, we can change you, right? This position contends a primary goal of Christianity is to resolve homosexuality through heterosexuality. Thus, failing to see that repentance and victory over sin are God's gifts and failing to remember that sons and daughters of the king can be full members of Christ's body and still struggle with sexual temptation. They're no different. We're all broken sexually. And yet we can be given victory over our sin, not a fixing or a changing. We can win victory. We can kill sin. This heresy is a modern version of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is, hey, uh, let's pass the bucket. You put a seed, right? You put some money in there, and God's going to return that to you tenfold, right? God wants what's best for you in your life, in this life, right? The best life now. That's the prosperity gospel. It's false. It's not what the Bible teaches. We just spent 21 weeks going through Peter. Suffer, suffer, suffer some more, suffer again, and then you're going to die. It's not about just rainbows and butterflies, 
So it's a modern version of the prosperity gospel of saying, name it, claim it, and pray the gay away. To say that kind of phrase is saying, hey, if you just become a Christian, everything is going to get fixed. And that's not true. I love this. This is a passage in Isaiah 56. Again, I'm, I'm talking about eunuchs. I'm going to get there. Jesus is going to talk about this a little bit more later on. I'm going to talk about that. But so just follow, follow with me. I love this passage, Isaiah 56, 1 through 5. This is what Yahweh says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this and the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without decreasing it and keeps their hands from doing any, any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely exclude me from his people. Right? He's saying, no, even the foreigner, invite them in. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree, but I can have no family. For this is what Yahweh says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant that I staked my own deity on. To them, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name that will be better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. That's the hope of the gospel. The individual who says, I can't have kids. I, I, I'm interested in, in other men or other women if I'm a woman, and, and it's not, I'm not, I don't have this family. I just, I can't, I can't do that. What Jesus and what God promises is that you're gonna have a name everlasting that will endure forever. That's the promise that we have from God. Another quote here, development of sexually speaking of orientation is complex and is, I think, best understood as being on a spectrum along which individuals can move, especially in the years soon after puberty, but also later. A small portion of people, including Christians, find that they remain exclusively attracted to the same sex as they grew uh, into mature, as they grow into mature adulthood. God has the power to change their orientation, but he hasn't promised to. Right? He hasn't promised to change anything. And that has not been my experience, this, in this man's experience. And research suggests, research suggests that complete change from exclusively homosexual desires to exclusively heterosexual ones is very rare. God's not promising to change anything. What he is promising to do is he's going to say, my grace is sufficient for you. That in your weakness and in your, in your physical ailments and whatever it may be, in my, my being, he's saying, my grace is sufficient for you. Have you ever, what I love about the Apostle Paul, you know, he doesn't name his thorn in the flesh. He doesn't do it. Thank God he doesn't do it because his thing's my thing. Right? The Apostle Paul could have a same-sex attraction. It could have been praying for that to be removed over and over and over. And God says, no. And the Apostle Paul chooses and chose to be celibate for his whole life, just like Jesus. One thing, though, that uh, I've learned a lot from this guy, Christopher One, he says this, unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. So you need to hear me. What I'm not saying tonight is that, hey, everything's okay. No, because, listen, church, if, if I'm sinning, I want you to call me out on that. That's the most loving thing you can do is say, Brian, you did this and it hurt me and I want to repent of that. Unconditional love for anybody, for any reason is what we're called to do, but it's not unconditional approval of my behavior. 
not of me or anybody else, that we need to fight sin together. Um, there was a, a little booklet um, that, I, that I got. It's this company called Lead Them Home, and it's, it's, a, it's a ministry. Their whole, their whole goal and desire is to help families and churches be, a, be able to better be equipped to be inclusion, to have inclusion with individuals who are not just heterosexual. So Lead Them Home aims, this is their vision statement, Lead Them Home aims to increase family acceptance and church inclusion for LGBT plus persons. Acceptance does not mean approval, okay? So he's saying the exact same thing. Acceptance does not mean approval. And inclusion does not mean that any of us can serve in any position that we choose. Acceptance and inclusion are needed to nurture faith identity. And this is bold on purpose. They, they have it bold. A gospel of exclusion has no power to reach already banished persons. They already know by just looking at the church and walking in here, they know how we think about them. They know that. So to treat them differently, to, to look at them weirdly, to, to not love, to not care, to not hug somebody. Hey, listen, if you're, if, I know there's a lot of single people in here, right? And I'm not a touchy guy. I was just talking to somebody. I'm not like a, I'm not, you know, some people, you know, they kind of come up behind and do the back rub thing. It's not, it's not me. And my wife could do that. It's fine. Just not me. And yet, single people don't get physical touch. Hug, it's okay. High five, give a massage if that's your thing, right? Just that's a side note, okay? If our churches truly possess the power of God, then we should want all kinds of people to come into our churches. We cannot, we, uh, sorry, we cannot nourish faith identity in people who are not accepted in our midst. It's true. Missionaries around the globe understand that the process of people coming to Christ is dependent upon proximity. I gotta got be with them. I've gotta rub shoulders with them. And we must bring Jesus living in us to people where they are as they are. We best reveal Jesus to people by fostering an inclusive atmosphere for people in the church. So is there any hope if you're in here, and I know there's people in here who are, this is, this is you. This is your story. Is there any hope? Is, is there anything that can be done, right? If, if God doesn't promise anything, what, what are we to do? Well, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 19. Pastor Steve read this last week, but I want to just talk a little bit more about this. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that in the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. They're talking about divorce. They have questions about divorce. And Jesus says, hey, God joined them together. Let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Right? So, so Moses in, in the Bible, right? says, man, if you're going to get a divorce, this is how you, how you do it. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning, pre-fall. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Right? They, they just call it as it is. Right? Well, man, if I can't just divorce my wife for any good or reason, we might as well just stay single the rest of our lives. Jesus replied, and this, is, this phrase is amazing. 
not everyone can accept this word. What he's about to say is incredibly difficult. It is incredibly hurtful to people who don't believe in Jesus. So the content, what Jesus is about to say is really important, but how we display and how we talk about that is just as important. Not everyone can accept this, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, aren't physically deformed or whatever it may be, they were born unable to reproduce. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, which is the example of most eunuchs when we read in stories of the Bible. But then he says this, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, like Jesus, like Paul, to say, I'm going to choose to remain celibate, whether I have a a homosexual uh, orientation or not, to say, this is is where I'm at. I'm going to choose for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Um, I was having a conversation just last night, actually, with someone about this topic, and, and, and this is the whole point, right? Because that sounds terrible. It does, right? That's not fair, right? I, I know what it's like to love. I know what it's like to, to have a family. They don't. It's not fair. And he says, and the one who can accept this should accept it. That people choose to remain single and to remain celibate for the kingdom of heaven. I've got a friend who went overseas recently, and uh, he's single, and he has, he's kind of accepted that and just said, I, I, I think I will always be single. And yet he was able to go overseas and do things that for me, with a wife and with two little children, I would not do, and I wouldn't go to those places. That they're able to do things for the kingdom of heaven that I can't do. And they choose to live that. And it sounds terrible. That's not fair. They didn't choose that for themselves. And I want to be reminded of what Peter says. First Peter chapter 1, 1 through 7, or 3 through 7 says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. And I know it's not fair, but Jesus, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, that eternal name that will never spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief at all kinds of trials. Context, what Peter's talking about here, this suffering is a direct result of my faith that I have friends who have chosen to be celibate and it's suffering as a direct result of their faith. And he says, this little while, again, if you remember, this is going back a long way, it's chapter one, this little while doesn't mean just a temporary thing. This could be an entire lifetime, but in light of eternity, it is a little while. So that's what we have to look forward to. You suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come to the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I, anybody who struggles with this and is choosing to be celibated, choosing to be single, you are saints. Because I have no idea what that's like. 
I can't even begin to fathom that. But it's suffering as a result of your faith. And some people choose to live the life of a eunuch. I want to close with one more quote here from Tim Keller. It says, science can't tell you whether you can or should engage in homosexual behavior or not. It can't tell you that. It can't tell you what's healthy and what's not healthy. It can't tell you what human beings ought to be like. That's the realm of faith. As soon as you start to tell people how they ought to be or how they ought to go uh, get there, as soon as you tell people to change and say, go in that direction, you are being religious and you're making faith assumptions. Oh, I know, there are some people who will say, well, I don't tell people how they ought to be. I don't give any values to them. I just help them find their own moral values. That is a moral value. You can't say that. As soon as you've decided morality is so relative that it doesn't matter what that person becomes as long as he or she becomes what she uh, or he wants to be, that is a moral value. And you are uh, operating on the basis of it, and you are being religious. The only differences between Christian counselors and other kinds of counselors is Christians are coherent about their faith and they have a basis for it, and they admit uh, that's what it is. The Christian counselor or the Christian pastor or anybody or a Christian friend who helps you change says, I know what a human being ought to be like. You ought to be like Jesus. Jesus Christ, the image of God, righteousness and holiness. That's where we're going. It's all about Jesus. It's about becoming more like him and loving like him and living like him as a, the perfect example of what it means to be human. So in gospel application, I think we need to repent. I, I know I've needed to. I still struggle with this. I still judge quickly people based on the way they look or the way they talk or the way they act. I need to repent. It's straight up sin when I look down on somebody else because their sin's different than mine. We need to repent, church. And then finally, we need to point people to Jesus. We need to be like Philip. We need to go into some very uncomfortable situations with people that we might not normally rub shoulders with and be in proximity with them so they can see Jesus in us and so we can tell them about Jesus and so they can be saved, not saved from homosexuality. Saved from hell. We need to point people to Jesus. We're going to have communion like we do every week here at, at Hope. And all I'd ask is that you would be a follower of Jesus. If you go to this church or, uh, or any church, or, it doesn't matter. You, you could have completely disagreed with a lot of what I said. But if you're a follower of Jesus, we would really love to have you have communion with us tonight. And partake in this sacrificial meal that Jesus instituted thousands of years ago. That this juice which represents his blood that was spilt for us to cover our sins it was his blood for us and the bread which represents his body which was broken and torn for us and the wrath of god that was poured out on him should have been poured out on us because we are all broken we are all sinners and we need jesus there are uh, gluten-free options on this left side my or your right if that is a dietary need for you will you uh, pray with me Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for scripture. I thank you that it's reliable. 
I thank you that as we read these stories and, and read this beautiful text, that there could have been things that I said, I, I know there were things that I said that have probably made people un uncomfortable, made people upset. But God, we know that someday you're going to return and you're going to make all things right. You make beautiful things. And you are making all things new. You are making us into your image. And someday, we as the church are going to be beautifully adorned as your bride. And we will be with you and you will be with us and we will be your people and you will be our God and you will dwell with us. And sin and temptation will be gone. And we can see our Savior face to face who died for our sins. God, would you forgive us of our sins? Would you forgive us for looking down on somebody else because they sin differently than I do? God, would you forgive us of our evil, wicked hearts that thinks I'm better or that you love me more? God, would you forgive us as a church? Would you forgive us as a church, as a nation, that all across this country for hundreds of years, this has been evil that has been done in the name of Jesus? God, would you forgive us? And God, would you help us? Would you motivate us to point people to Jesus? Would you bring people into our lives that we can talk about you? That we can talk about what it's like to have a new life in Christ so that you will receive the honor and the praise and the glory forever and ever. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.